Hello and welcome back to the ZSL Wild Science Podcast. My name is Ellie Darby, your host for this podcast, and I say welcome back because I realise it has been a while since the last episode. I apologise for this. There have been lots of exciting things going on at ZSL this year, and this podcast sadly isn't the only thing I do. Other parts of my job involve all sorts of science communications and running our programme of evening events, and something new to me this year, figuring out how to hold a two-day conference online. But we're back, and I plan on staying. Now, there's a couple of new things that you might notice during this and future episodes, as I thought it would be a good opportunity, a fresh start, to trial a few things. Such as, I'm thinking of keeping our podcast ZSL focused for future episodes, because we have so much fantastic science and conservation going on right here across all our departments, and I think people need to hear about it. But that's where you come in. I would love to hear from you. We've got a brand new email address solely dedicated to the listeners of this podcast. So if you have topics that ZSL work on that you'd love to hear more about or a burning question for the people who work on them, please do email me at wild.science at zsl.org. That's wild.science at zsl.org. And I promise I will read everyone. I really want you as the audience to have a say. If you're not sure about all the amazing work that goes on behind the scenes at ZSL, head to zsl.org and check out the science and conservation sections. Anyway, enough housekeeping. Let's talk about the real topic that brought you here today. And it's a big one. How can we recover nature in our cities? Now, it's no secret that cities are generally perceived as spaces of little conservation relevance, yet local urban wildlife actually underpins a range of ecosystem services. These are things like climate and water regulation and reducing air pollution levels. We live in a time where rapid changes in the climate are causing more and more extreme natural events, and perhaps the recovery of urban ecosystems is being overlooked as a potential solution to increase the resilience of our planet. However, by their nature, urban ecosystems of course include humans, people, us. So there are all sorts of socio-ecological aspects to consider too. The recent Living Planet report states that the population sizes of all animals has fallen globally by 69% on average from 1970 to 2018. And the speed of urbanisation is increasing. So wildlife is disappearing and we are becoming more and more disconnected from nature as a result. Can recovering urban wildlife help us to empower local communities to reconnect with nature and restore whole ecosystems? To help me answer these questions and understand this complex topic, I'm going to speak to three ZSL scientists with different approaches to nature recovery, each with their own set of benefits and challenges to overcome. I'm also going to ask them, and you, our trusty listeners, at the end of this episode, once you've heard everything, what changes you'd like to see in policy or legislation that you think might make a difference to recovering nature in our cities. But for now, let's get on with the episode. Our first guest is Professor Natalie Petarelli, a senior scientist in our Institute of Zoology here at ZSL. Natalie's expertise include a huge range of topics such as climate change ecology, satellite remote sensing and conservation technology, biodiversity monitoring, population and ecosystem dynamics and rewilding. So she really feels like the best person to start with for this question of how to recover urban nature as I feel like so many of these aspects will tie into this. Thank you for joining me today Natalie. You're most welcome Ellie, thanks for the invitation. 
So I'm going to brush past my first question of how do you fit all of this into one working week and go straight to the topic at hand. So what does nature recovery mean? How can we recover nature? So nature recovery is really, it can be interpreted in different ways, but in the way I think about it, it's about uh, making our ecosystems work better, being less degraded, having more wildlife and being more ecologically complex. So it's really about bringing back nature in our environments. And this can be done in a, in a very different way. You can uh, focus on the, to start with protecting what you have. So landscape and seascape protection. You can also focus on uh, trying to have stronger environmental standards or low, and that's to reduce degradation of uh, nature. You can do what's uh, called traditional restorations. This is about uh, employing a set of techniques to uh, recover damaged ecosystem. Or you can do uh, something like rewilding, which is more understood as um, bringing back natural processes in functionally degraded ecosystems, but using minimal to uh, no ongoing management in the long term. And really trying to put them on a trajectory to being more ecologically complex. So you're not trying to bring back what was there. You're just trying to make them work better, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, as led me on to the next question, I often hear with rewilding in particular, talks of, you know, reintroducing big species. And I understand that's at one end of the scale of rewilding, but how could it be applied to cities? So if you're thinking about cities, the cities are urban ecosystem. And urban ecosystem are not an ecosystem that should be something else and has been degraded to a city. It's an ecosystem in its own right. Now, the way it works, that works differently from your big remote forest landscape. It's a collection of patches that are very interdependent and very dynamic and where humans are everywhere around. But it's not because those ecosystems have different characteristics that they cannot be rewilded, as that you cannot bring more ecological complexity into it. And so the idea here is to work on how to get those ecosystems to have more processes that ultimately underpin more services for us, such as uh, resilience to climate change. Making things more ecology complex doesn't systematically entail to bringing big animals. Not all our biodiversity is big and uh, scary or uh, difficult to live with. Ecological complexity can uh, be increased for a lot of uh, taxa that humans can live with, uh, whether you think about birds, small mammals, or a lot of the invertebrates. Yeah, definitely. And I, I'm sure there's a fair bit of misunderstanding of what rewilding means in, in different contexts. For anyone who wants another introduction to rewilding. We did do an episode, episode 35 of this podcast on nature-based solutions, where Natalie was also one of our guests and introducing rewilding as a nature-based solution. So what makes urban environments unique and important to rewild? What's some of the benefits of urban rewilding that you haven't already mentioned there? To me, the key of urban ecosystems is that's where a lot of people are, which means that that's where nature and the recovery of nature can really benefit people. We talk a lot about nature recovery as a way to bring a lot of uh, services to people, but uh, nowhere else is it so linked up spatially that where most people are. And in the UK, over 80% of the population actually lives in urban environment. So bringing back nature in urban environment means that you increase potentially the number of people people that really do get those benefits. It's also a really good space 
space for talking about conservation and starting to think about how do you make space for nature in your everyday life. So in a lot of very developed countries such as the United Kingdom, people have, have lost, especially people living in cities, have lost the ability to coexist with nature, to share their space with nature. The tolerance to nature is can be seen as relatively low and that connection has been lost. So this is prime settings to engage people with conservation by going where people live. Now, that's all uh, good in terms of benefits, but there are also some really practical benefits that people can get from uh, bringing back nature in cities, and that include climate change mitigation and help with climate change adaptation. It has to do with reduced pollution, so more ecologically complex cities generally do a good job at improving air quality. It has to do with reduced environmental management costs, if you're talking about uh, rewilding, because a relatively uh, low management approach means that that uh, you're less reliant on pesticide, on mowing, and on trying to always uh, put a lot of money towards getting a nature as you imagine it, as opposed to a nature that works well. It has benefit in terms of improved human health and well-being. There's now a number of studies that have showed how people that are close to nature or have access to nature really get both uh, physical and mental benefit from it. And then in some cases, it can also increase the economic activity and the wealth of cities because it attracts new businesses and new business opportunity, as well as uh, potentially increasing uh, the economic value of a neighborhood in terms of a house price, for example. Yeah, so really bringing home that reconnection to nature and that can have a whole lot of other benefits as well as the practical side that you were just talking about as well. So we've talked about, you know, the positives that can come from this. And I know there's some further further explanation of this in ZSL's recent report, Rewilding Our Cities. So if people would like to find out more about these topics, they can find that report on our website. But what are some of the top three challenges that you can face when trying to rewild in urban spaces? And how can we overcome these? Well, there's actually more than three. But if I was to pick up three, one would be the human wildlife conflict. Because if you bring back nature in an environment where people are not used to share their space with nature, and bearing in mind that tolerance in some human environment can be very low. I mean, people can get upset over uh, native plant species and and, uh, that war over the weeds. Is a, is a good illustration of those mini conflicts that can really have quite some impact on uh, biodiversity in cities. So human-wildlife conflict would be definitely one. I think another one will be about the challenging policy context and the complex legal and financing structure. So rewilding, because it focuses really on uh, the functioning of nature. So not that much about how nature looks like, but whether it's bringing benefits or not. Traditionally, we have been more comfortable and therefore the legal aspect and the financial aspect have been more comfortable with looking at what it looks like and whether or not it meets expectation to build financing model around traditional conservation approaches. With rewilding, you're not exactly sure how it should look like. Just know that it needs to work better. But there's more work to do to really uh, be clear on what are good measures of functioning and how do we detect that and how can we say this has improved, this is working better. Which means that there's no real good oven ready 
<laughs> policy framework and a financing structure that are really there to support those type of approaches, but they, they are coming. And then the third one is the divesting resources. So and this is really specific to rewilding, but rewilding is uh, currently attracting a lot of attention for good reason. Yeah, it can do things that are quite interesting in the context of climate change, but that doesn't mean that uh, we should all just do rewilding and nothing else. And so what you don't want is uh, people starting to abandon long-term projects, a restoration project, traditional conservation approaches to suddenly divest everything towards rewilding. So trying to have an appreciation of the nuances in approaches and how those different approaches all matter because not everything works everywhere. So you need to have a portfolio of approaches. That's also something that we're going to need to learn to deal with and uh, make sure that we don't inadvertently cause damage through uh, those divesting approaches. Yeah. Okay. So lots of things to think about. So, you know, thinking of a Blue Peter-esque, here's one I made earlier example. Is there anywhere where this has been done successfully yet? Uh, there's There's been quite some example of cities that have engage with rewilding. So rewilding specifically, I mean, if we're talking about uh, traditional restoration and uh, green infrastructure, this has been going on for quite a while. But rewilding, which is really this approach where you are trying to work with native species, where you're not systematically trying to recreate what was there before, and you're kind of open to novel association. Um, There's some good example in Germany, where there's a wall, different cities that have started to engage with passive rewilding, letting nature recognize areas that have been previously abandoned. Singapore has also been quite uh, strong on uh, urban nature recovery and rewilding with the rehabilitation of uh, various uh, rivers, bounds, and uh, really trying to find novel way to bring back uh, nature in cities. And there's more example again in that report. So um, what I would say is that rewilding as an approach is relatively new for cities. It's much more common to go with restoration and uh, any kind of green infrastructure, so traditional uh, managed parks. We don't have as many examples when it comes to rewilding, but it's definitely coming. So it sounds like what works, you know, in one city isn't necessarily going to work in another. So lots of communication between different cities, between different groups within cities is is really important. Would you agree? Absolutely. I would say given the urgency that we are facing with really rapid, drastic changes in a, in climatic condition in some situation and the, the real need to get our cities to adapt to those uh, climate changes. And on top of uh, this novel approach with rewilding, that we could gain and we should gain a lot by having a cities exchanging experience and starting to build knowledge platforms to exchange tips and share any kind of experience so that people move faster in that space. So as a communication specialist, that makes me very happy. Lots of talking. So if you're living in a city and you're interested in rewilding or recovering urban nature, what are the first steps that you could take as a resident? I think everyone that can help recover nature in their cities. But it's true that we all have very different situations. Some people have a garden, some people don't have a garden, some people have a big garden, some uh, have uh, funds that they can uh, allocate to redesign part of their space, some don't. I would say that there's a lot of good resources and my my favorite is a website called Rewild Your Street where they really give you a lot of tips depending on where you live and what you can afford or what you're interested to do. Um, For all of us, it's going to be a journey 
journey. So this is something where you start with what you're able to and what you feel comfortable with, because it, as previously said, it also entails relearning to live with nature nearby you. And then slowly but surely moving on that gradient, if you can, to try to introduce even more. But it can be as simple as uh, putting some nest box, digging a pond, putting some uh, native uh, flowers on a balcony or uh, nearby um, a window. It doesn't have to be complex, but uh, just to be aware that things can be done. Sometimes letting a patch of your garden grow without control, accepting that uh, you're not going to get rid of all those things that you think are weeds, but actually these plants that are really important for your local biodiversity. These are all potential steps. That's great. So I understand that with this concept, you're generally looking at it at a larger scale as the whole ecosystem of a city, but there are things that people can do in their own spaces, whatever that may be, that can actually contribute to that. That is really the point of urban rewilding, is understanding that all those little patch, and that's ultimately what a garden is or a park is, those patches, the more you rewild them, the more you recover nature in them, the more you increase connectivity at the ecosystem level, which means that more species can move around and ultimately thrive in those environments. That's great. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you, Ellie. The next guest joining us is Dr. Chris Carbone, another senior research fellow here in ZSL's Institute of Zoology, whose research focuses on broad-scale patterns of mammal ecology relating to body size, diet and trophic level, owing to an excellent Twitter handle of Tiger Food Man. Chris also works on wildlife monitoring methods, human-wildlife interactions and urban ecology, all of which feeds into the work of the London Hogwatch Project, which he founded in 2016. So Chris, thank you for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. London Hogwatch, what a name. As much as I'd really like this to be a project about making tiny timepieces for hedgehog wrists, tell me what London Hogwatch really is. Well, um, it, yeah, in 2016, we started on a really small scale. So we were working with Royal Parks at Regent's Parks, the home of London Zoo. And we decided to use camera traps to monitor it, to help them look for the hedgehog populations that they've been working on uh, for some years using torch surveys. So we set up a series of camera traps across Regent's Park and it went from there. It's been expanding in southwest London and in North London. We now have covered surveys covering uh, about a third of London boroughs. Yes, so it's expanded quite a lot since, since the start. Wow, that's so cool. And just for anyone who might not be used to the phrase, can you just explain what a camera trap is? Yeah, so a camera trap is a bit like a, you know, security camera. So it basically is a standalone camera. I actually, funnily enough, don't have one on me at the moment. Normally, I have them within arm's reach, but... You can describe it for the for the audio effect. So basically, it's a little box about this big, and um, it has a camera, and it has a thermal sensor, so it detects movement of an animal in front of it. So it just triggers it when the animal moves. These days, they're really efficient, really quick. To react and they just record anything that moves in front of the camera. So why is that useful to use in urban environments in particular or is it useful in any kind of environment? Yeah, they're, they're great in any kind of environment. So they're used in the tropics, they're used in desert environments, in a whole range of environments. Even in, we even had a project in Antarctica, you know, <laughs> so they work everywhere. And they're great in urban environments too, because, you know, we can use them to detect animals that we don't normally see every day. So species like hedgehogs, which are largely nocturnal, you can see them really 
well. And what other than hedgehogs, what other animals do you pick up on your cameras as well? And what's the most unusual thing that you've seen in your records? Yeah, I mean, hedgehogs are one of the rarer species we get. Um, sadly, they are found only in kind of small isolated pockets across Greater London. You know, the most common species by far we get is the fox, which I guess won't surprise many of the viewers on this, um, because most people see foxes on a fairly regular basis. And we get literally thousands and thousands of fox photos. But badgers, monkjack, rabbits, and a whole range of ground-feeding bird species are locally abundant throughout different parts of London. So we, we get a whole range of species. It gives us a really nice, complete picture of the mammal and some of the common bird species in different areas. And wasn't there something quite recently that you picked up Yes, that was quite different? <laughs> yeah, we do get really unusual sightings every now and then. Uh, yeah, we had coverage of a pine martin that we found in uh, Kingston in southwest London. So that was really exciting and totally unexpected. It's the first time that species has been seen in, in greater London in the last century. So really extraordinary sighting. Yeah, definitely. And so you mentioned how Hogwatch was set up, but why was it set up in the first place? What's the main objectives of it? Well, so yeah, it started out, like I said, really small scale, focused just on running some camera traps. So to understand better local hedgehog population distribution. Um, ZSL has a long track record working with camera traps across the globe. Our scientists have been involved in some leading innovations in using camera traps to monitor wildlife. So um, we thought we could tap into that expertise and use it to help uh, with a local conservation problem. Uh, so that's been really exciting, that side of things. But the, the role of Hogwatch has expanded over the years quite a bit. We've had over 2,000 volunteers helping us with camera trap surveys. So it's got a big potential uh, to provide a kind of interesting activity for citizen science across Greater London. And increasingly, we're looking at ways of trying to get funding to develop schools programs for kind of local education programs. So that's something that we're hoping funding permitted will be able to do through the program, working with our conservation and policy unit as well, and the education community learning uh, groups here at ZSL. So it's really exciting. There are the sort of roles of Hogwatch has, has expanded in a range of different directions over the years. That's really exciting. And so it's a great way to kind of help people People reconnect to nature in cities. Yes. So you've been running this project for a few years now. And what's one of the most important findings that you've discovered from the project? And what can it tell us in terms of urban connectivity? And sort of how does that contribute to this nature recovery in cities? So I guess initially, we've had some interesting scientific research coming out of the project. So uh, one of our PhD students, Jessica Turner, has led on a paper, which is produced a predictive map of hedgehog distributions uh, around Greater London. And that will be used to help us target new areas to do camera trap surveys in, but also it really provides valuable information about the kind of habitats, urban habitats you need to sustain hedgehog populations in London and in other urban areas. I suppose the other thing that's kind of exciting about the project is that as, the, as we get more and more data, we get better able to sort of come up with wider scale understanding of urban mammals and urban birds and how they coexist with people. You know, coexistence, human wildlife coexistence is nowhere are more intense than in urban environments. I mean, the human population is, of course, you know, by definition, really, really 
um, you know, people are really common in the cities and the use of public green spaces is really intense, which, which is lovely. Uh, people are using their, their local parks and green spaces, but wildlife use it too. And we can learn a lot about how those wildlife uses public green spaces in urban in cities. And that, that's really interesting. And I think the other, other exciting aspect of this work is there's great potential to use projects like this to engage school kids and adults alike in local wildlife. And I think it provides opportunities for engaging a much more diverse group of people uh, than we normally have in, in the conservation community. I think um, the conservation sector is one of the least diverse sectors out there. And, and I think an urban wildlife project like London Hogwatch provides a really exciting opportunity to, to broaden that and to reach people that we wouldn't normally reach in this area. Yeah, brilliant. So it's got like a threefold benefit coming out of it. That's really cool. So if people want to help recover some urban wildlife or let's use hedgehogs as an example, what can they do? How could they connect their habitats or make their gardens more hedgehog friendly or how could they get involved if there's any kind of citizen science projects in London, I guess, specifically? Well, if people are interested, there's local conservation groups that they could get involved with. They could start their own groups. So partly in areas where we've done surveys in the past, we've found that we've inspired people locally to get together and form their own groups. I think the most obvious thing that we we would like people to do is to start trying to improve connectivity of their area uh, for hedgehogs. Hedgehogs aren't great at getting over human-made barriers. So, you know, park fences or fences around people's gardens or human structures. They struggle to get around and they need to roam widely to forage, uh, to find food and to find mates. So hedgehog highway schemes are particularly important in urban urban areas. And also, I think it could be that, you know, if you've got your own garden, you could be working out ways of improving it for wildlife generally, and that would help hedgehogs. So things like log piles and shrubby areas in the corner of the garden really help to maintain invertebrate diversity, and that provides food for species like hedgehogs. So that's really good too. A lot of things that people can do then. Yes. That's really good. So what's the future of the Hogwatch project? Are there plans to scale up to other cities? Or it sounds like from different topics of nature recovery, a lot of the theme that comes out of it is connecting people and groups and making sure that all the groups are talking to each other in order to get somewhere on a bigger scale. Is that similar for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We talk about connecting hedgehog populations and connecting people in the same project, really. You know, quite often people will know a little bit about a local hedgehog population, but they don't know about other groups or they don't know about the distribution a little bit wider outside of their immediate neighbourhoods. So I, I see a role of Hogwatch as connecting different groups across London. But excitingly, we're also in the process of talking about a plan to do a a UK-wide kind of hedgehog surveying network with People's Trust for Endangered Species, but ZSL being an important partner on this initiative and groups like BHPS, the British Hedgehog Preservation Society as well. And what we would be talking about there is having a series of networks in other urban centres, say have a Bristol Hogwatch in addition to London Hogwatch or uh, local rural groups as well, uh, surveying their local hedgehog populations. And of course, this would benefit not only our understanding of long-term trends for hedgehogs across the UK, but also a whole range of other species that co-occur with hedgehogs. So badgers, foxes, you name it, and a whole series of birds. So 
that's a really interesting and important initiative that if we could get off the ground would be really exciting. Oh, that's really exciting. So watch this space. There's lots of good things coming for the Hogwatch. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Species Spotlight. So this is a new segment of the episode and a trial, if I get a load of hate mail, but please don't, where I will talk about a chosen species related to the episode for one minute to drop some facts for your next trivia night. Today's species, of course, is the European hedgehog, the UK's only spiny mammal. Scientific name, Erinaceus europaeus, I think. The hedgehog can live for two to three years, but some have lived up to ten years. Hedgehogs will eat anything, meaning they are omnivores, eating bugs, insects, fruit, mushrooms, you name it. They hibernate over winter in a winter nest called a hibernaculum, Latin for tent for winter quarters. So I hope you're all picturing tiny hedgehog teepees like me. And they breed from April to September, with the females raising litters of four or five hoglets alone. And I'm sorry, but hoglets is a very cute baby animal name. Hedgehogs in the UK are declining due to habitat loss from changes in farming practice and isolated habitats in urban environments, which is why hedgehog-friendly gardens and fence holes can be really beneficial and in some urban areas are already having a positive impact. That's it. Minutes up. So now we're going to jump from habitat connectivity on land right into urban waterways with Joe Pecorelli, a freshwater conservation projects manager at ZSL and a self-proclaimed passionate advocate for wildlife conservation that engages and benefits from citizen scientists and the skills and energy that they bring. Joe is a member of the Riverfly Partnership, the Catchment Monitoring Cooperative and the London River Restoration Group and according to his professional biography, he is never too far from a pair of waders, which I think is one of the best representations of someone's job I've ever heard. So thank you, Joe, for joining us today. Thanks very much. So we've been hearing about rewilding and reconnecting habitats for small mammals from the other guests, but you're here to tell us how rivers can be involved in restoring urban nature. What can we achieve with rivers? Why are they special? I think they're special in the opportunity that they give us in urban environments. So they often, particularly if we're thinking about the London context, and and that's pretty much where a lot of our work is, river corridors are a series of interconnected wildlife sites, essentially. And if we build on those foundations, that we can make them into really important areas for conservation at landscape scale. And also, um, I mean, I'm a bit biased. I am obviously a freshwater conservationist but you know fresh water is disproportionately biodiverse you know a small proportion of our planet 3.8 percent or so is covered in fresh water and yet it it's home to uh, about 10 percent of all known species so a fantastic potential to support biodiversity in urban environments yeah and i know especially with the river thames in particular people had this kind of preconception of it looking like a big city river but the data that's come out over the past few years and the state of the thames report about the surprisingly biodiverse diversity of the river is incredible and what what from those information what was the most surprising or unusual species that was found in London's rivers oh my word well there were so many I mean the te- the story of the Thames is a fantastic one isn't it because it gives us hope because obviously now it is London's greatest wilderness biggest space biggest connected wildlife corridor and home to numerous species but of course we don't have to go back too far 60 years or so and it was pretty much fairly devoid of life 
Um, now, I mean, you know, we we are regularly surveying it, and certainly seahorses are a surprise guest in some of our surveys. That's so cool. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And it really brings home that connection to the wider marine environment and the importance of estuaries as as nurseries. So we do a lot of work monitoring juvenile fish in the Thames. But of course, I live up on the top of the tides of the Thames, and it's not that uncommon in the summer to see a seal coming up to the the weirs and sluices up here. So it's amazing. It is amazing. So what are some of the challenges that rivers in London or other big cities can face? Well, so the potential for rivers is great, but the challenges are pretty severe. So if we think about where do we start? Water quality is a big one. Due to the sort of nature of urban catchments, they are prone to being polluted by foul water, so sewage, road runoff, all these things, they are particularly problematic. Habitat, so there's about 600 kilometres, again, I'm thinking about London, 600 kilometres of surface water in London. A large proportion of it is constrained through essentially box culverts concrete uh, and it's not that complex you know uh, the more complex the habitat and the more species it will support generally and so we've lost a lot of that habitat complexity and habitat variety water quantity is obviously a big challenge so a couple of rivers in south of london are actually augmented by pumps uh, in the summer months during low flows you know climate change is a is a serious problem that was really brought into sharp focus this summer just gone so those are the sort of main challenges. How do you go about restoring an urban river if you want to overcome some of those challenges or bring back some of that urban nature? That's such a good question because, you know, when I when we first started embarking on this at ZSL, we kind of thought it was a technical problem to fix. And we had the evidence, we know what the problems are, but it's so much more complicated than that, like everything. And it becomes more of a sort of social challenge and a challenge in changing the culture of the way we develop our spaces, the way we engage with our spaces, the politics. For instance, rivers, river catchments span multiple administrative boundaries, local authorities in London, and and this will be the same elsewhere. And often rivers are used as the boundaries, you know, they're pushed to one side and kind of out of sight, out of mind. So actually one of the first steps that we have to take to restore rivers is engage local communities with them and bring the rivers back out into use, into, into public space. You know, if we think about the history of rivers in London, lots of them have been buried and lost, you know, the fleet and the Tyburn. It's because they were sort of welfare issues and, and they, they were just vectors of disease. They spread disease. So now there's a big culture shift to working with natural processes and bringing uh, rivers back out into view and into use so local people in London can get access to the nature and the, the well-being that that brings. So it's got that human aspect, definitely. And in terms of the more practical aspect, which I understand is not necessarily the first step, is there an overlap with rewilding principles in river restoration or are they very different? Is that the wrong thing to say? No, absolutely there is. No, and I kind of I kind of glossed over the the actual how do you restore rivers, didn't I? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's basically one of you have to restore the physical habitat and then the wildlife generally follows, um, well, certainly in terms of inverted life within the river they, they follow so not river restoration in its strictest sense is about restoring natural process and of course rewilding is about allowing natural process to become dominant and letting loose really and put, putting nature in the driving seat chances to do that in urban areas are often quite restricted because of course much as we need rivers they can be destructive 
flooding being the obvious one. So there are overlaps, but often there's restoration and restoration of natural processes where possible. And then there's kind of naturalization. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned some of the destructive nature of urban rivers and What are the wider impacts in terms of climate change mitigation or other things like that that can be improved from restoring rivers? Yeah, it's it's such a good question because, I mean, we're coming at it from a wildlife perspective, but to restore a river has so many more benefits. A big one being resilience to climate change, which will bring much more chaotic weather patterns. So the potential for more flooding. So by restoring rivers, we make space for water. And we've learned, you know, that the kind of old school of flood management was to move water very rapidly, put it into concrete boxes and move it out away from the lower catchment and out into the sea. But we now know that that can be problematic. And what we need to do is slow slow the flow, store water in upper catchments by creating wetlands and uh, restoring rivers capacity to hold more water. So that's just one example. And, and obviously the cooling effects of water flowing through the city, reducing the problems with heat that we will experience. Yeah, so so many reasons to restore rivers. And has this worked anywhere yet? Have you restored rivers successfully somewhere? How do you measure that success? Well, we've been working as part of the London River Restoration Group for 15 years or so now. And actually in the last 20 years, so the group has restored 39 kilometres of river within London. Wow. Yeah, it's a real success. I mean, it's not an easy business. So this is, uh, there's a kind of technical way of assessing whether a river is restored. It's about going back to that kind of restoring complexity in the habitat and restoring, particularly important is restoring the riparian zone, so the banks essentially. So that's a good start. You know, that's about 6% of the total length of river in London, but we need to do more and we need to do it faster. And I think we're in a biodiversity and climate crisis. So there's an imperative to do more of more and up the pace of restoration. So what can people do? You know, how can we recover these urban rivers? Does it start with this community involvement and sort of getting involved in your local area? I think that helps enormously. Yes. I mean, we work with about 300 uh, volunteers a year, uh, trained as citizen scientists to gather evidence on pollution events, the impact of barriers to fish migration. So that's one aspect, the community side. We also need the right policy and the right legislation in place to support a speeding up of restoration and then the political will. And it's really challenging to change the culture of the way we have done things and to get more restoration done. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Joe. You're most welcome. Thanks very much. So we're asking this question to our listeners today and to all our guests on the episodes too. In your opinion, what is the one change in policy or legislation that you would like to see to help recover nature in cities? And you have to pick just one. Yes, that's the difficulty, isn't it? You have to pick one. And so there's different reasons to pick different ones. But I'm going to go with my bugbear because (laughs) there's one thing that really, really I would like to see change and that's artificial turf i really don't understand how it's okay to remove things that are alive to then put green plastic instead because it literally kills everything on top and then it kills everything under it because of the heat so it really it really remove opportunity for nature to thrive and on top of it degrade it kills and degrade <laughs> everything uh, in the soil and I, I do understand that people like the convenience 
convenience of it and the aspect of it. I really do understand that, but we simply can't afford it. Convenience at some point has to stop. And this is one of prime example where we need to rebalance that coexistence and make that space and, and try to avoid having markets pushing for, for changes that are really, really detrimental for biodiversity in cities. Well, we've already got, I think, legislation for hedgehog highways and new builds, so I'm not going to use that. That's not my one. I think if I were to have one for, for London, it would be to have a government program to increase access to nature in our public schools. So I think there's a real fear, at least, of disconnect in school kids living in urban environments with nature. You know, I can easily see that school kids in urban environments, especially in inner urban environments, can, can lose connectivity with, with nature. And I think it's really an exciting way of learning about nature is by getting outside outdoors in local parks and public green spaces to really enjoy nature and to see it firsthand. As a kid, I was lucky enough to have opportunities to do that. And that was what inspired me to get involved in, nature, in studying natural history. And there's never a more um, appropriate time to do this with a new natural history GCSE that's coming out in 2025. So I think a program to support that, especially for kids in inner city public schools in areas where perhaps they don't have that opportunity. That'd be so exciting. So many things that need to be changed. I think I'm going to go a bit nerdy and say that we need to enact Schedule 3 of the Floods and Water Management Act 2010 because what that act does is it basically supports the development of sustainable urban drainage. It puts it into the, the ownership of local authorities and planners and it allows us to build essentially more wetlands and to manage surface water in a way that will achieve the multiple benefits that we've just talked about benefits to wildlife but also reduce the impact of flooding and all those things so yeah schedule three excellent nice and specific i like that So there we have it. Get rid of artificial grass and start making space for nature in your gardens. Develop a government programme for access to nature in public schools and enact Schedule 3 of the Flood and Water Management Act 2010, obviously. But now it's over to you. What would you like to see change? Please email me your answers at wild.science at zsl.org and I will read some of the most popular ones out on the next episode and pass them all on to our guests so your thoughts can potentially feed into their future work. This has been a fantastic episode. We've heard about a huge range of benefits from restoring nature in urban areas, with positive impacts on well-being, the economy, society, climate change, as well as the challenges that must be overcome to achieve this. So it's definitely complicated, but our guests have provided a bit of conservation optimism for how we can start to approach these challenges and some tangible ways to get involved. Everyone has their part to play, even if it means doing one small thing. I asked the question at the beginning of this episode, can recovering urban wildlife help us to empower local communities to reconnect to nature and restore whole ecosystems? And I think after speaking to Natalie, Chris and Joe, the answer is yes, but communication is key. Linking communities, projects, councils and scientists together and really using that group momentum to gain wider support and funding. Ultimately, we need to start putting nature at the heart of our cities and our decision making to rebuild those connections and push this movement forward. 
As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you have ideas for a topic you'd like me to explore with our wonderful ZSL staff and students on a future episode, or just general thoughts about the podcast, please email them to wild.science at zsl.org. While you're on your chosen electronic device, please don't forget to rate and review the podcast as it really means a lot and it helps us in the charts as well. And subscribe if you haven't already, as I am promising you lots more exciting content, but I am less good at being able to promise you a regular schedule, so if you subscribe you will definitely not miss them. So that's it for this episode. Thank you to our fantastic guests and to all of you lovely listeners for tuning in. See you next time.